foundations of New Testament church at the end of the book of Acts, the four things that I think are critical, which are word, spirit, community, uh, and evangelism. And uh, I've never changed my opinion on that. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. Such a privilege to have you joining us as always. And if you haven't already, please do us a favor and leave us a short review. Give us five stars. Tell us you love us. It boosts our ego, especially David's. David really could use an ego boost every now and then. He's always doubting himself. He's not, you know, not super self-confident. So do, do David a favor and, and let him know how much you love him. And uh, <laughs> I'm obviously kidding. Um, and then check us out on YouTube. Look up Good Theology. Lots of good stuff happening. And uh, we love having these conversations every single week. And we hear from many of you all the time about how helpful it is. David, it's always a joy to be with you. How are you today? It looks like there's sunshine coming in from your window. Well, there is, which it's not very warm, but uh, but that's... That's the upside. The downside was I had a a session with my maxillofacial surgeon several hours ago, the result of which was one tooth less, and I'm still semi-frozen on one side. So I'm. Uh, you may have to carry a little more of the conversation today. Who knows? As long as uh, as long as you have the entirety of your brain intact, then we should should be okay. Your mouth seems to be functioning fine by the day but anyway we'll do the best we can yeah yeah uh well what's uh what's your schedule looking like these days you have some travel coming up right to the uk yes we're actually at uh c3 toronto oh wonderful next two weekends and uh brilliant fly to england where we're at c3 london and sheffield and wonderful the big uh, I mean, that those are wonderful, but for me, the personal highlight is uh, going back to the church I started in 1980 where they're opening a brand new building. On their, they, They've already got a beautiful building, and they bought a bigger one. Oh, wow. Growing. And, and I'm very honored to be the speaker at the opening Sunday on the 20th. Wow. And then after all that excitement, uh, it's our 40th anniversary in a couple of weeks and we're spending a few days in Italy because uh, a couple that started the church with us 43 years ago or whatever in Durham who were just teenagers basically then 19 well wow. um have bought a uh house two houses actually in Tuscany and wow. we're going to stay with them uh, to celebrate our 40th anniversary maybe amazing John to Florence or something down the road and so so are they in Italy full time no they uh they uh live in uh, northern England and they live in the same a uh, city Durham and the are part of the same church that wow was had been except they have lived in different parts of the world but they now come back and so they live in Italy as long as the EU will allow them to reside there <laughs> since the divorce of the United Kingdom and Europe. It's a great divorce. Fourth. Mm -hmm. 
That's interesting. 40 years, same church. You know, they've had some seasons where they've been in other places. But, man, let's just give us some wisdom there. What's the secret? How do we make sure that we all can I say the same thing? You know, honesty, Jake, I think the church was born in a visitation of God. We were blessed to have oversight that gave us a boatload of wise teaching. Um, and are you referring to New Frontiers? It, it, it was the beginning of what is now called New Frontiers. And um, uh, we had an extraordinary group of young people, they're all university students, who were totally sold out for God and committed. And Andrew and Jane, that's their name, or Andrew and Jane Westerman, there, they were two of those young people. Um, they got married and... Andrew became an elder, was an elder for many years. He was very, very successful in the educational education world as a consultant, lived in the Middle East and did all sorts of things and uh, went, helped out in a big church in Dubai. And uh, wow. when, when they uh, retired from that, they returned to home base, uh, but had this vision of um, a house in Italy that they could maybe do they work with the local church there and uh people come over there for refreshment or whatever and stay with them and and so uh but you know the the long and the short of it is that that we have still some very very significant deep deep meaningful relationships from those days and a friend of mine uh referred to used to refer to them as as covenant relationships mm -hmm. uh, I think they're relationships that are so deep, you just carry them with you the rest of your life. No matter where you live or where they live, you can walk right back in, uh, you know, after whatever absence, and it's just the same as it was, and they're always there for you, and we've been blessed with a number of those relationships from those early days in, in the UK, and ma many of those young people went on to do great things for God, plant other churches, lead in the business world and so on so anyhow um but that you asked the question and that is our itinerary whether any of our viewers are particularly interested or not that's great i'm glad it's about matter i think there's some good encouragement that comes out of it though just in reflecting upon the history that you have with this church in durham i'm curious uh how long were you the pastor of that church before you uh three years i uh, I led it, led this team of young people, and when I say team, I mean it was manufactured by the Holy Spirit. There was no, we didn't have any church that sent or helped us financially. It was just God raised up this group of of young people, and I was in my twenties. I was a little bit older than the rest of them, and uh, appointed two elders who were twenty two, and uh, together we, uh. You know, we led the church, and the the young people um, were just on fire for God. It quickly grew. A lot of conversions. There were uh, miracles of healing, and all sorts of things happened. And it birthed, and you know, over the years, planted a number of churches in in more than one country out of out of that congregation. And the most recent one is just four or five years old. That's uh, old. But the great so you were only there for three years before you transitioned out of only three years, and wow. and then you moved back to Canada. 
and and I and we went to Canada. We were sent out, and and that wasn't. I mean, it was a total shock to me. But God spoke to me, and God spoke to Elaine separately, and we went. We got married and went, and uh, and yet we still have this wonderful relationship with the church. And and uh, the guy that leads it and has done for thirty years now, uh, his name is Alan Bell. And uh, he just has done an extraordinary job through thick and thin of, of leading that church and and uh, and 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 acquiring these buildings. Not the buildings or everything, but uh, you need a base. And one of the one of the 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 first building is uh, they run it as a business conference center. It pays all the bills, mm-hmm. and the church uses it whenever they want to. And it's a state of the art building. So. Uh, but the DNA of the church is the same as it was. And I know I'm at the risk of being sentimental uh, that what I'm going to preach when I go there is, is a updated version of the same message I gave at the very beginning, which was mm. the foundation uh, foundations of New Testament church at the end of the book of Acts. The four things that I think mm. are critical, which are word, spirit, community, uh, and evangelism. And I've never changed my opinion on that, and and uh, I go back to the description of that first church, and I know that we can't, you know, it it's not always uh, the the best thing to say. Um, let's go back to the New Testament church because we have to remember the New Testament churches had all sorts of problems in them. However, I do believe that it, it, in that first church in Jerusalem which was, you know, you might say in the white heat of revival and Pentecost, the outpouring of Pentecost, there was a pattern that the Holy Spirit laid down that it it would do very good for us to follow. And you find the word, the teaching of the word, the moving of the Spirit, koinonia slash community, and outreach. And I think, as far as I may think, I can't really think of a fifth, sixth, or seventh wheel that I would add to those four wheels. Uh, you know, everything else I think is a, a subdivision of that. And I think I think that most people are happy where you just get a word and spirit church. But, you know, to add community and then to add a healthy dose of outreach, because mm-hmm. you can have all the rest of it, but if you're inward looking, you'll eventually die. You know, that's just a dream. But that's God's pattern. And this brings up something important that I think is worth talking about and following this rabbit trail for a moment. So one of the things that, uh, one of the words that's been on the tip of everybody's, every pastor's tongue and, and certainly just lots of church members' tongues coming out of the last few years has been the word discipleship and uh, a sense of churches need to do better at discipleship. I've, heard lots of pastors talk about how that's an emphasis for them. Certainly that was something uh, very heavily on my mind. Um, and, uh, you know, some people are saying that in, in the spirit of, uh, like, they want to be proactive about that. Others, it's more of a complaint, something that they feel like is missing. Um, but what's interesting is it's not one of the four wheels that you just mentioned. And... So you're saying word, spirit, community, and outreach slash evangelism. And I think this can help maybe clear up a misconception about what is discipleship. 
because when I think of those four things, if those four things are working and happening, then there is a culture of discipleship. Disciple making happens in the context of the preaching of God's word, the ministering of God's Holy Spirit, uh, the encouragement of people practicing spiritual gifts, um, and then in genuine community, seeing the church's family, and then obviously reaching out to the world around us. Am I right in my thinking about that? Because if you were to think of a fifth wheel, certainly a lot of people go, well, discipleship needs to be a wheel. And maybe that's part of the problem is we think of discipleship as like an extra thing to stick on there when really it's the outcome of doing those things well. Yeah. And you, and you could certainly argue that or view discipleship as being an expression of community because community mm-hmm. to me involves um, uh, the the structure that God has placed within the church, which I think last what you're talking about represents eldership uh, and the diaconate. But basically, let's say you... And the lead elder. Uh, let's carry on. If, uh, you know, fathers and mothers in the body of Christ, you have elders in place and so on, then that uh, that structures the family. We're talking about community. Community isn't just, um, uh, you know, uh, grabbing coffee at, in the in the foyer of the church after right. the service and passing a few superficial remarks or pleasantries with somebody. That that's not that may be all the community you get in some churches, but that's not community. Community right. is where the family of God is operating as it's supposed to operate, which means people are being discipled. So uh, that that's how I would see it. So I think that if and if you certainly if you're teaching the word, the word includes discipleship as a principle of scripture, obviously. Uh, and the spirit is moving to make those relationships happen. But, and that creates community. Community is structured according to the word of God. And it's structured in such a way that discipleship happens. That's the whole essence of Christian growth, I think. Um, yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Um, and it's always something that seems to, to be uh, within reach and aspirational all at the same time. Something that we're always trying to perfect. That's on my mind a lot for our own church uh, throughout these summer months that I really want to help us keep improving in um, is uh, genuine sense of community amongst the many um, and not just a few. You know, and I think we do that pretty well, but can keep getting better at it. And within that sense of community, a, a genuine interest in helping one another grow and mature, um, which seems to be the vision that Paul puts forward in, in Ephesians chapter 4 when he's talking about how the end result of the saints being equipped for ministry is that the body starts to build itself up in love. When everyone's doing their part, Maturity in the body is the outcome. Um, so, unplanned, but funnily enough, Ephesians chapter 4 is what I want to talk through with you today. Um, not that section, just after that section, beginning in, in verse 17. And we'll begin in verse 17 and just see how far we make it uh, in the time that we have. 
Um, so I guess just for some context, Paul begins this chapter, chapter four of Ephesians, by saying, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And he's just spent the first three chapters essentially describing that calling, all of the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ Jesus. Um, I guess what Paul would sum up perhaps in um, in verse, uh, let's see here, uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, where our, he wants our eyes to be enlightened in order that we, we may know the hope to which we have been called, which is the riches of God's glory and glorious inheritance in his holy people. So God's riches in his church, that's our calling that we belong to the body of Christ. And we're to live lives that are worthy of that calling, that we are God's people now. Um, verse 17, jumping from verse 1 in chapter 4, seems to be uh, him picking up on this thought and starting to get a bit more granular in terms of, okay, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the call of God that believers in Christ Jesus have been given? And so he says this, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So Paul's going to go on and he's going to he's going to talk to us in essentially bap, baptistic, I don't know if that's a word or not, but baptism language about taking off the old self and putting on the new self, um, dying to the old and being reborn a new creation in Christ. He's going to get there, but he's starting with Here's what I want you to stop doing, where he's describing the old way of life that he wants them to leave behind, which is the life of an unbeliever, what he here calls a Gentile. He characterizes unbelievers as people who are in the futility of their thinking. He goes on, he says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. One more verse, and then we can unpack it a bit. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So Paul paints a pretty stark picture here of what it means to be a non-believer. Um, I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit. Certainly there seems to be some Roman one, Romans 1-esque language present here, futility of the mind. Um things like that. So uh, now it's going to turn to good news, but let, let's start with, with this part here. What, what are your immediate thoughts on this, especially considering Paul is talking to people who are already reborn? They're already new creations, and yet they need to be encouraged to throw off the old self. Well, I think, um, you know, Paul is very realistic way back in uh, or way over in Romans chapter 7. Um, he describes himself as soul under sin and uh in in my uh you know he says in my mind i'm serving the law of god but in my members i'm serving the law of sin and so he's he's realizing that the christian lives in a tension where uh the effects of the fall you know we're still battling the difference when you become a christian is that you're able to fight back by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans chapter 6. And so it's a misconception. If we tell people that when you become a Christian, all your problems are going to disappear and, you know, you won't 
over sin anymore and it'll be really you'll you know easy you'll be instantly quickly sanctified that's a complete deception it's it's a um uh uh you know uh, on the one hand uh, we want to emphasize that christ has made a difference in our life which he has mm -hmm. but on the other hand we don't want to uh pass over the seriousness of the mess that we were in before we came to Christ. And Christ is every day redeeming us out of that mess. And and in that process of sanctification, uh, every day we're being exhorted. Because when he comes to this language that he uses in Ephesians and Colossians of put off, you know, the old man and put on the new man, um, he's... It's, it's uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the present tense, which means it's a continuous activity. It, on the one hand, he says, you know, you've laid aside your old life when you came to Christ. But on the other, you know, you died with Christ. And in I think it's in Colossians where he says, you died with Christ, therefore put to death. You know, uh -huh. the sinful elements of your present life so it's a paradox uh we've died and yet we still have to put to death the remnants of what we still carry from our fallen nature so that's that part of it and i think that what he what paul is doing when he gives this kind of description of the this is what you used to be like you know dark mm -hmm. understanding and so on um, it's kind of drastic language, but it's realistic yeah. language because he wants to mm -hmm. remind us that we were rescued out of a, a re real mess, a hopeless mess. Our lives were without hope and without God, and God has taken us out of the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, and so there's been a big transition, but you can't really appreciate what God has done for you, and you can't appreciate the blessing that you have in Christ uh, unless you appreciate fully the measure of darkness that we all came out of. And part of that appreciation, or that uh, analysis of our past and present life is that, you know, because we came out of such a dark place and because it was so all-encompassing, um, that is something that still wars against us, that still exists within us. And uh, therefore, we need the help of the Holy Spirit every single day to fight back against that. Uh, what do you think Paul means by futility in their thinking and dark, darkened in their understanding? Well, futility is the same word he uses in Romans where the creation mm -hmm. is subjected to futility. Futility is um, that which prevents uh, something from attaining its end, its goal, what it was created right. for. When when something is futile, it's like a, a feeble attempt. It's, 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 it's a, not going to accomplish. It's a failed attempt. And so... Uh, we were created in the image of God to be like God, uh, and our uh, when we came under the curse of sin, our 
all of our um, all of our efforts to attain meaning, value, and significance, and so on in this life became futile, vain, a failure, uh, futile. Uh, if if um, if I said to you, Jake, you know, um, if you if you uh, want if you think you can swim across the Pacific Ocean, that's futile. That's not going to happen. It's you you'll die in the attempt. It's no matter how good a swimmer you are, it's futile. Um, if you think, and Paul says, well, if you think you can really live without Christ and the daily help of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's futile. It will come to nothing. We, that was the life that we were in. What we were designed to be as, as the sons and daughters of God was completely destroyed. We lived a futile life, a life doomed to failure, to not attaining the end for which it was designed. And that's the world that the unsaved live in. What's interesting is that Paul connects that so deeply to the mind, right? And so twice, futility of their thinking darkened in their understanding. Is there a sense there where Paul sees uh, the the basis of people's attempts to begin in their thoughts? You know, because he could very easily say, like, the futility of their living, Uh but he doesn't. He goes. Uh, he goes a layer deeper to the thought life. Is that like where he sees to be the beginning point, yes no. the starting point of our depravity? The the the, the word uh, nous n o u s in Greek, um, mind, is used by Paul almost as a synonym of cardia or heart. So, where he looks for that which represents the center of our being. We'll talk about that sometimes in terms of, you know, mind be be renewed, uh, you know, in your mind uh, means to be renewed in Christ. It's not just uh, we 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 think of mind as intellect, um, right? That's not what he means. It may include that, but it's something much deeper. It's our more. You could translate it, our understanding of life, our understanding, our basic perspective um, is our, expressed by our mind. It expresses, uh, you know, our outlook, our perspective, our understanding of who we are and of life that... Our worldview. Perhaps. Our worldview that's rooted in our very, at the, at the core of our being. And it, it's not just an intellectual perception it's rooted at the core of our being. So what he's saying is that outside of Christ, we are uh, in a, a we have a dark and depraved mind. Understanding our understanding is futile. Our our very heart, our being, the essence of who we are, is is in a devastatingly disastrous condition. Mm. Yeah, and that's interesting because. So much of uh, the world's philosophy and teaching, oftentimes, is a is is seeking for a replacement for the biblical worldview. It's it's you know oftentimes the, uh, a Christian worldview is broken down into four stages of uh, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation or new creation. And many times, I find. And this is not a you know a unique thought to me, but um, 
different ways of thinking in the world, different worldviews that non-believers have and that sometimes creep into the church are they're re- replacing those four stages. So, you know, if uh, if the Christian worldview is that creation is the starting point, that God created the heavens and the earth, um, perhaps a secularist worldview is uh, something more along the lines of, well, you know, there was some kind of nothing that gave way to some kind of something and that then underwent certain processes for billions and billions of years 13.8 or something like that and here we are so that, and so and then there's they've got their own version of the fall as well like what what went wrong you know in terms of why things are the way they are and um and i i wonder if um if in paul's thinking here it, it's like when we're apart from christ it's like we can't even conceive of reality the right way even our conception of the way things are is off. And so how could we possibly ever have any hope of saving ourselves? We can't even diagnose the problem correctly. How could we ever hope to put forward a solution that can redeem humanity from its mess? As you said, all of our attempts are futile because we don't even know where we begin. Yeah, I agree. Then he goes on in that same section and he says, um, they've lost all sensitivity. So their their hearts have been hardened. This to, to me evokes um, thoughts about Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And there's like that paradox there of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, but God also hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, the second in response to the first. Um, and as a result of that heart hardening, there's the loss of sensitivity. There's there's no prick at the of the conscience when they indulge in what Paul says, impurity and and greedy behavior. Yeah, and of course, is part of the. I was just going to say, is part of the part of the miracle of Christianity seems to be then the recovery of that sensitivity that that where we were impervious to the conscience when we come to Christ it's like our conscience gets awakened to that sensitivity and it's not that we become perfect in our behavior but we become more sensitive to our sin what are your thoughts well that's exactly what uh, occurs in the life of a genuine believer um, and and that's why I think Paul can be so uh, agonizingly uh, vulnerable and transparent uh, in mm. terms of the condition of his own heart. You know, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Uh, and I, you know, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And, um, I mean, he was aware of, I mean, he was there. I think Paul's, I think what really got Paul was being the witness at Stephen's martyrdom. I don't, I think that's at the back of a number of comments he makes, and I don't think he, he can ever shake himself clear. I mean, he's, um, it's like, uh, if you watch the movie about William Wilberforce, I forgot what it's called, it's an amazing movie, where uh, Albert Finney plays John Newton, 
and Newton, of course, was a slave trader, and he is tortured still uh, by the memories of, you know, what he did as a slave trader before he came to Christ. And uh, he says in the, in the, which I'm sure is, is an accurate historical quote, but he says in the movie, two things I know, uh, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And I think that expresses the truth of the gospel. And it's why I get bothered by, you know, when uh, sort of motivational, uh, you know, motivational teaching, positive thinking, and this type of thing, which out there in the world is, you know, the Tony Robbins, Oprah type thing where you're, you're just wonderful, live up to your potential and all the rest of it, uh, where that comes into the gospel, it corrupts the gospel, it's antagonistic to the gospel, because we're not here to tell people how wonderful they are. We're here to tell people, you were a wretched, hell-bound sinner. You know, you might not greet them at the church door, and that'd be the first thing that you'd say to them. <laughs> but we have to remind people that we ourselves and everybody else, that was the state of our heart. That's what we're coming out of. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you can't just say, okay, now you're in Christ, you're a new creation, the old has passed away. And, uh, you know, I mean, those things theologically are, are true in the sight of God, like the old has passed away, you're a new creation in Christ. That's what we call the juridical sense or the legal sense. Um, in the sight of God, we are saved and accepted by Christ and the beloved. But there's also a moral sense of, of these uh, ideas where we are, uh, it, you know, we are, we are dead to sin uh, in, in, in the judicial sense that the judgment of Christ has saved us, but we are very much not dead to sin in the moral sense. That's where it's, I've died, or you've died with Christ, that's the judicial sense. Now put to death the deeds of the body, that's the moral sense. In the moral sense, we're still fighting daily the after effects of what we were coming out of. Just like, you know, uh, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not that I'm taking that for a model, but they teach you to say, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And part of us wants to say, well, you don't have to define yourself that way anymore. Um, uh, you know, especially if you're a Christian, obviously you define yourself as a Christian, but you might also say, um, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic because it's, it's a reminder that that thing that gripped you and possessed you, uh, uh, outside of the grace of God, it could come back again. And, uh, um, and, 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 and to sort of pass it off as something, oh, well, that's now I can do anything, you know, all that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't carry any baggage. That's so unrealistic and unbiblical. Uh, and, and I, I, I think that that's, you know, it's, we, we, and you say to me, well, David, you're, you're preaching a very negative message. No, I'm not. I'm preaching, what I'm saying is you were, you and I were in such a horrible, horrible mess that, only this amazing thing that Christ has done for us could possibly 
have hauled us out of that, the depth of that awful mess that we were in. Um, so that's the positive side of it. But we need to remember, and it's why I think Paul, you know, uh, lays it on a little bit thick here. Uh, and because some... He certainly doesn't mince words. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then he says that, however, this, you know, indulging him in purity, being full of greed, lost all sensitivity, futile in thinking. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. I don't know if this is intentional or not, but it seems like there's a little nod there to Jesus' statement up being the way, the truth, and the life. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you learned the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, which again you've pointed out is Paul's way of describing the center of our being, not our intellect, but our whole being, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now this is where some things get distinctly Christian, and this is how we know we are not reading another gospel. This is not legalism, this is not self-help, or anything of that variety. Paul is specifically grounding our new way of life in something that has been created, verse 24, the new self which has been created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What I see there is the incarnation of Christ, the Son of God becoming a man, and in that creative act, there is new creation, and when we come into Christ, we receive true righteousness and holiness as opposed to the filthy rags of our own works that uh, we are capable of, of producing not true righteousness and holiness. Um, it's also interesting to me that Paul contrasts the new way of life as being characterized by truth and the old way of life as being corrupted by deceitful desires. So you have deceit versus truth. Um, and that to me could be a way of another way of summarizing the gospel, it's to come out from lies and to enter into truth. Yeah, and, and that's an intriguing point about the way of the truth and the life. I'd never seen that, but it could well be. Um, and and it reminds us again, going back to what I said about mind, that truth is not just an intellective or intellectual concept. It Jesus, the truth will set you free. And uh, we had a Southern preacher in our church once years ago, and what Pat, my uh, elder's wife, my elder Paul, his wife Pat, used to make these, and still does, these incredible cheesecake brownies. You've never had anything like it. And that Southern preacher, his name was Ben, or came into our church, and he ate one of these cheesecake brownies, and he says, that'll, that'll set you free. I never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> The truth sets you free. You know, it's not just a concept. It's a power. It's a power of God. Uh, because the King's power. Jesus it's Christ. It's the truth. You know, and so, and so here right. it is, we're created um, in the, after the likeness of God. 
I'm sure he's thinking of the image of God in Genesis. I'm, I'm sure he's thinking of the recovery of what God intended us to be. As you rightly point out, when right. Christ came into this world manifesting the pure, exact image of God, of course, in a, in a way that even Adam didn't and Eve didn't, um, but Christ came into this world manifesting the image of God in order to draw us back into that place that you know in adam we lost and uh and of course we have to remind ourselves as a process we're not entirely there yet um uh we still live in you know he says corrupt through deceitful desires there is still a corruption that we've inherited because of our past life that will you know lead us uh make us vulnerable and we'll we'll make mistakes and fall into sin from time to time and we'll die one day physically and you know we'll have to go to the maxillofacial surgeon unfortunately and have teeth removed at a certain age and what are you what are you calling your dentist the what he's a he's a he's a maxillofacial surgeon i don't know if you have some oh i've seen a sign that says that what is that word maxillofacial facial it's uh you know is that greek is that in the New Testament? And maxilla is a Latin word, and it, it means, you know... They, uh, I was just joking, but of course you would know that it's Latin. In any event, uh, <laughs> I, I overheard my surgeon saying to one of his patients, I'm not, I'm not the dentist, I'm the surgeon. So they will do surgery that the dentist uh, won't attempt uh, for various reasons. Um, and so... Uh, that is where I landed, and it's partly a result of the fallen nature that I still have and have inherited from Adam, and the same reason that, you know, as my, my dentist, now I'm going back to my dentist, who's going to do the bridge work, and he said in a rather jolly manner, well, it should last for 20 years, which should be enough. Well, after all, you'll be such and such by that time, and well, obviously, you got control. <laughs> <laughs> oh no now we're talking about death disappointed the man wants to die and then come with judgment but that's revision <laughs> as well although you know god can heal and extend life and all the rest of it but we still have to die unless the lord returns before then mm -hmm. what does this say about evangelism right going back to even your four pillars so the former way of life is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. If that's true, even of the the flesh of a Christian, then it's it's e perhaps even more true for somebody who is not in Christ. They're corrupted by the deceitful desires um, of their sinful nature, which is kind of another way of saying what he says back in verse 18, like, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. If people are, are are so fooled by their desires and their desires trick them into thinking that if they act upon certain impulses that will lead to the fullness of life that they long for, you know, I, I guess to think in an Augustinian manner about our hearts are restless until they rest in God. We were created for him. And there's that 
longing in us. We don't, we don't know what to do with it, but we're, we're longing for more. But our desires are deceitful, and they keep leading us down the wrong paths. What happens in, in the miracle of salvation? Because you certainly cannot convince somebody into Christianity. Um, there's, there's no gift of gab you could have that would bring somebody out from a place of a darkened mind that is ignorant with deceitful desires. Like, to me, I just read that. I go, salvation is a complete and total miracle. Well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? You know, and that, again, that's what we have to emphasize, uh, that the, well, let me put it this way. Uh, I mean, I'm not opposed to altar calls uh, for any reason, um, but you have to always remember that uh, an emotional environment you know, peer pressure, manipulation, whatever, can result in people walking forward and saying something. It doesn't mean they're saved. I had a very ornery neighbor right. once, and, uh, uh, I mean, he was just a, a pain in the backside, to be honest. Uh, and, you know, one day out of the blue, he sort of announced to me that, you know, he'd, he'd gone forward in an altar call when he was a child, and he was going to heaven. And I thought, well, not right. so sure about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't see the evidence there. You know, so yeah. we're not called to be judges, but we are called to be fruit inspectors, and I don't see much fruit. I kind of wonder, you know, uh, what's going on there. But um, so, you know, uh, what all I'm saying, all that to say this, that you can't manipulate or cajole someone into the kingdom through human methods. It really does take a work of the Holy Spirit. We're born again by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament tells us very clearly. And uh, uh, and we need the Holy Spirit to break into our darkness and, and, and draw us and save us out of that wretched condition. And, of course, you know, our role is just to say yes. Uh, but unless, you know, if, if it just comes down to positive thinking, then... We're not going to last a day as a Christian. <laughs> yep. Very good. So let's close with this. Um, Paul then starts to get practical. So he's put forward this spiritual reality. This is how we used to be. This is who God has recreated us to be in Christ. There's a participatory element to that. We have to put off our old self and put on the new self. Um. And we do that surely through uh, through the ways that we participate in Christ, whether that be through prayer, uh, time in the scriptures, certainly through ecclesia, the church, um, taking of the Eucharist, this, these different ways, sacrament, sacramental living, essentially, how we participate in heavenly realities. Um, and then there's some behavior outcomes. These are five examples that Paul gives from verses 25 through to 32. Um, let's see if we can get through all of them. He says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So I had read uh, that the 
the structure that each of these follows is a negative, a positive, and then a principle that undergirds the teaching. So put off falsehood, stop doing that, and speak truthfully to your neighbor, start doing that. And here's the principle, for we are all members of one body. So do we just take this at face value here? Paul is saying, don't lie, you know, be, because because the Christian life is life according to the truth, the first most practical thing for that is speak truthfully to your neighbor, and neighbor here seems to be your fellow church member, for we are all members of one body. When I read that, you know, where my mind immediately goes is like, okay, is there such a thing as... It, in in with good motivations as sparing certain people from saying certain things because it it wouldn't necessarily be the most helpful thing for them which i think paul alludes to down in uh verse 29 when he talks about don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs so it's like Everything that's true isn't necessarily helpful all the time. You don't need to say everything that you think. Even I, I, I right. think he's thinking of something much broader than that. I mean, put away false. So talk about it. Speaking truth is you and I elite living in a light w with one another. It could be my, my, you're saying, how are you doing? And, and my saying, my saying, I'm not doing too well. I need help. That's speaking the truth. Speaking right. the truth is, Jake, I don't like that you're wearing or something like that. You know, speaking the truth is is uh, being living in Christ-like openness and honesty, rather than in living by a lie. Uh, and um, and so I think it's a very broad conception here. Uh, Whether that be you being in the response seat where someone is inquiring of you, and you have the opportunity to share the truth of how things are, or if you're in the proactive seat um, and uh, you're sharing something with somebody. The truth is speaking what Christ would say in any given situation. Uh, I think that's the kind of mentality uh, that he's promoting here. I don't think he's talking about, well, you better go up and if you, you know, like if you don't like your hat, if the guy's hat, then tell him you don't like it. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about no, I don't think that either, but sometimes we don't tell the full truth because we're afraid of what the truth might reveal about us. And and so I think there, there is a very real sense of honesty that has to exist with one another in the body of Christ, even if a time he's not being members of one another. I mean, you can't, you can't, um, you can't drive a, uh, you know, a, a semi-truck trailer, right? Uh, over a rope bridge uh, you, you can't do very much so the rope bridge is a relationship if you if you want to you know get really serious with someone about an issue you feel is going on in their life you need to have some kind of relationship with them or else it will just be devastating or they'll walk away and be angry and we are in the right to speak into one another's lives I think and, and that right is heard through the development of relationships so when he says your member is one of another, that, excuse me, that's a he's assuming I think a much deeper, deeper level of relationship uh, than we would that exists in many churches, North American mm -hmm. churches. 
assured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the basis of that kind of relationship, we can speak truth to one another. Yeah, that's really good. I think that points to the importance of, uh, again, coming back to one of those pillars of community. Um, okay, we're kind of picking up on what you're talking about there in terms of anger. So in, in your anger, do not sin. So he's quoting Psalm 4. And then he, so that's the negative. And then uh, here's what I want you to do. Don't don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. And then the principle being, do, don't give the devil a foothold. So in some way, when we persist in our anger against others, that opens a door for the enemy to come in and do his, his work. It's a terrible door. And, you know, I've known people whose lives were consumed with anger. Even, even as Christians, and uh, I, mm-hmm. I had a, my friend Graham Brother it was written a book on anger and used to do seminars on it, and I was, and I said, well, you know, re, re, put it up, another title on your book. It was, it was something like dealing with anger. Um, I said, call it healing lights hurts or something, but which he did, um, because you know, as soon as people read something about anger, that most people. They don't want to know right. about it because it's it touches way too close. But actually, anger is a root. Anger slash unforgiveness is a root of a massive amount of trouble in the lives of of Christians as well as as well as unchrist as non Christians, obviously. So, uh, you know, conflict resolution is a really really important thing, and Jesus talks about it in Matthew eighteen. So I think that if there's anger in our life, it's an automatic foothold of the devil. It's an opportunity, I think. I'm reminded, too, of one of your psychological friends who pointed out the fact that anger is often the root of depression. That's what they tell me. And I asked a psychiatrist the same thing. Uh, And I don't even know if the person was a Christian or not. But I said, would you say that anger is the root of a a large... uh, Number, you know, a large percentage of cases of depression, and and they agree. They said, "Yes, I I do feel that." So I think that I think that we're onto something here. When we, uh, I often ask people who mm-hmm. have been depressed or are depressed, you know, who are you angry at? And I'm not saying you know there's other roots of depression as well, you know, and I'm not clinically qualified in all all of that, but. I do think there is a link between unforgiveness and where Jesus says, if you don't forgive, it, it, which means if you stay in your anger, uh, then you'll be handed over to the tormentors. Why is that? Because if I'm angry at someone, I'm taking the place of God and judging them. And we know that because we play those things over in the scenarios in our mind over and over and over again at uh, this person we're angry at imagining them coming to some disaster or something and it's it's like literally taking the place of God wishing judgment on them that's why it's such a dangerous right. thing because right. we have then denied the reality that we are own that's what God what God did for us was he didn't treat us like that he actually forgave us therefore we need to forgive others of course forgiveness is a mean mm-hmm. paving over ignoring what happened Forgiveness has to acknowledge what happened, but forgiveness is handing the person to God. They will stand under God's righteous anger, you know, for what they've done if they don't repent. But 
I I haven't got the wherewithal within me to um, be angry at people and maintain a healthy relationship with God at the same time. Do it. Mm-hmm. Angry leaders are worse leaders. Yeah. So. And if if to have that that festering anger in our lives is a sinful thing, perhaps we could say that even more fundamentally, whether it's anger or something else, or I should say whether it's anger and a link to depression, or just sin in general and a link to a lack of health in our soul and our emotional lives, um, that to me seems to be the more foundational truth, is that when we break God's moral law, that has very real world ramifications for how healthy we are. Um, so, and I think that that's tr- true no matter, no matter what way we're sinning, I think that sin contains its own consequences and those consequences reach in, into our, our well-being in our inner life, would you say? Um, okay, let's move quickly through these last ones. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. I think principally there we can say that um, part of our attitude towards the body of Christ is not just that we get, but also that we give. And so that we even spiritually need to be a people who are able to contribute. Obviously, we all go through seasons where we feel like we don't have anything to give, um, and that's perfectly okay. That's what uh, being able to lean on one another is for. But on the whole, we should be able to say um, that we have something to share with those in need. Now, it seems to me Paul is literally talking about theft here, um, but perhaps there is a, a, a larger principle as well that could be drawn out from it that sounds something like that. Well, the 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 fallen world is based on us taking the kingdom is based on us giving and so theft is just right. a manifestation a severe manifestation of the fallen nature uh you know we mm. we could all say that we steal from other people even if we're not literally steal property we can right. steal people's time, we can steal their energy, we can steal well, their joy through our wrong behavior. And the principle holds that we're yes. to become givers like God, which is what he draws out. You know, like right. says yep. we should all have something to share. Uh, even if it isn't material, you can show, still share something of who you are with the other person. Yep. Even the way he summarizes the old life back in the earlier part of what we were looking at is people who indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. So essentially they're self-centered people. They live for the gratification of their own flesh um, and the accumulation of their own wealth at the expense of uh, other people or to or by employing means of wrongdoing others. Um, and so the antithesis of that being, well, you, like you said, you become a giver. You have something to contribute, and you 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 take joy in that. Um, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That, to me, is the most challenging one, to let no unwholesome talk come out of my mouth, to never misplace 
my words, that ever be flippant in my speech. Uh, is this kind of along the same lines of what James, you know, writes in his epistle as, you know, essentially like, if you've tamed the tongue, um, then you're, you're from one degree away from perfection. <laughs> you know, you, you've made it. Uh, is that kind of the same idea that Paul is encouraging us towards here? Yeah. Same, same thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then he sums it up with, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. So essentially just every form of evil, summarizing all the things he's talked about. And instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So he brings us back to the reality of the gospel, of what God has given us in Christ, um, and... Uh, what is the reality that you and I are in Christ and therefore are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this this kind of ethic, this virtuous way of living, uh, to live it out. Um, and we're not perfect. We won't be perfect. But we certainly are expected to strive in the Spirit, if I could use such a phrase, um, to manifest this kind of lifestyle. And I love that he that he summarizes it all with being kind and compassionate to one another and forgiving each other. So there's the understanding that we're we're all going to blow it, we're all going to mess up, and what helps the whole thing work is this engine of forgiveness that needs to be constantly employed in the body of Christ. We need to be grace-filled, amen, people. Remembering we receive grace, we need to give grace or be the channel for God's grace. Yeah. Yeah. And, he's, and he says to do this as, um, as children who are loved by God. That's what he goes on to talk about next in, in chapter 5. And so we have to be recipients of God's love if we are to be givers of God's love. And so to have our own relationship with the Lord where we receive the love of God um, is foundational to any kind of successful Christian living. Um, and apart from that relationship, things start to break down very quickly. Um, so that that's our encouragement to you today. Begin there. If your relationship with the Lord is running dry, Perhaps your time with him is less than is needed to come back to him. Give God the first of your day and receive his love so that you can live this out. Um, and I, I believe that through that, we see transformation. We see discipleship happen in our churches. That's what I love about this is it's the sake of the project of personal holiness does not remain personal. It reaches into the life of the community and causes the whole community, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians 4, to build itself up in love. My holiness affects your well-being and vice versa. And if we all seek after it, then I believe that we we grow up into maturity uh, as we ought to. Any final words from you, sir? Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. We love you. Appreciate that you tune in regularly to Good Theology. We'll see you right back here next week. God bless you. Thank you.